Hey guys, my name is Ali and I'm an FY2 doctor. Thank you for scrubbing in on this episode on Dr. Ams and Dr. Abdul's educational series. Thank you boys for having me. Today I'm going to share a case study from my time in the emergency department. So you are the SHO in A&E, it's 3 o'clock, and you pick up the notes for Karen, a 61-year-old office assistant who is presented with collapse and confusion. You enter the cubicle, introduce yourself, and find Karen lying on the bed accompanied with her husband and two children. You check the patient's details and then proceed with the consult. Karen appears alert but disorientated, and so her daughter begins to explain what had happened. She begins by letting me know that her mother had gone to work this morning, and while she was walking into the office at around 9am, she suddenly collapsed. Her mother is unable to recall whether she lost consciousness, but fellow workers immediately rushed over to offer assistance and call an ambulance. On the ambulance triage notes, it mentioned that her BMs were 4.4, and so the appropriate treatment for hypoglycemia was initiated by the first responders. On pressing further, you discover that she had skipped breakfast that morning, and it was also the first day that she was wearing a special orthotic boot, as she was newly suffering from foot ulcers. As time went on, Karen became more and more able to speak for herself. She was coherent and articulate, but the confusion was persisting. It's always important with a fall to tease out what happened pre, during and post fall. Did the patient feel lightheaded? Were they dizzy? Did they have any chest pain, breathing difficulty or palpitations? During the fall, you want to know whether they lost consciousness. Was there any tongue biting or incontinence, both suggestive of seizure activity? And did the patient injure themselves? And after the fall, it's important to ascertain what immediately happened, how they felt, how long it took to resume normal activities, did they feel lethargic, confused, and was there any weakness or speech difficulty? Karen was unfortunately unable to offer any of the above information, but she was adamant that she tripped over her new walking boot as it was rather heavy and the first day that she was wearing it. She maintained the view that she was now feeling better and that she just wanted to go home. With a quick systems review, she denied any cardiovascular, respiratory or gastrointestinal symptoms. She had no pain and had suffered no obvious injuries from the fall. However, it was unclear whether she had sustained any injury to her head. Her past medical history includes non-insulin-dependent type 2 diabetes, hypertension, and she also has two small ulcers on the plantar aspect of her left foot. Her medications include metformin for the diabetes and ramipril for her blood pressure. She has no known drug allergies. She lives with her husband and she works as an administrative assistant in an office. She reports drinking occasionally on the weekend and is a non-smoker. One of the last parts of my history was an abbreviated mental test, an AMT. Now interestingly, the patient was unable to recall her date of birth, her address and where she currently was. And after going through the remainder of the question, she scored a 0 out of 10. So, let's take a step back. I want for you guys to pause this recording and write down what you think may be going on before you examine her. I began my examination by gaining consent and asking the daughter if she wouldn't mind acting as a chaperone. The patient's observations were normal. She was apyrexial and she was scoring a zero on the modified early warning score. I once again clarified whether she was in any pain before I started, which she politely denied. My focused cardiac, respiratory and abdominal examination were unremarkable and I proceeded to complete a more thorough neurological examination in light of the patient's enduring confusion. I began by assessing gross motor function and asked the patient to move her arms and her legs, which the patient did without major difficulty. 
I assessed the tone of both her upper and lower limbs, which revealed no abnormality. When examining power, I noted a subtle 4 out of 5 deficit on both her left upper and lower limbs using the MRC muscle power scale. In furtherance, when assessing the modality of sensation, I noticed that the patient, albeit able to, was questioning herself when localising light touch to her left upper and lower limb. She would confidently identify light touch on the right hand side, but was hesitant with the left. Her reflexes and coordination were normal, and plantar's downgoing bilaterally. Cranial nerve examination was grossly normal, and when trying to assess for facial droop, a useful tip is to ask the patient or any family members if the patient's face looks normal to them, which they both confirmed it did. I concluded the examination, thanked the patient and her daughter, and informed them that I would like to chase the results of the CT head and blood test that she had on admission. So again, let's take a break here. What would you be looking out for in CT? What are your current differentials? Are there any other investigations that you'd like to consider at this moment in time? The CT head report is back, and there is no acute intracranial pathology. Her bloods are normal, and the ECG shows sinus rhythm with occasional atrial ectopics. I then discussed the case with my consultant, as I suspected that the patient may be having some form of cerebrovascular event, as the patient's confusion, positive risk factors of diabetes and hypertension, as well as the localising neurological features pointed towards a possible stroke. One of my other differentials included a hypoglycemic attack, which can sometimes act as a stroke mimic. I then discussed the case with a stroke SPR, who came with a consultant to assess the patient. An hour later, I discovered that the patient had been taken over to the stroke unit as they both believed she was having a stroke. Very simply, a stroke is a clinical syndrome caused by the disruption of blood supply to the brain. With strokes, there are rapidly evolving signs of focal or global disturbance of the brain's function, lasting for more than 24 hours or leading to death. There are two main types of strokes, ischemic, i.e. occlusion, and hemorrhagic, i.e. denoting a bleed, with the former being the more common, depicting 80% of stroke cases. Both result in infarction, i.e. brain tissue death, However, the management of both can be very different, so it is important to clinically distinguish between the two as soon as possible. Strokes as a topic is vast and extensive. However, for the purpose of this podcast, I will keep it brief and simply focus on a few key areas. Firstly, is how a stroke compares to something called a transient ischemic attack or TIA. A TIA is a transient insufficiency of the circulation in part of the brain that will mirror the clinical presentation of a stroke. However, it is both temporary and reversible. Hence, a TIA is a retrospective diagnosis. The cutoff for defining a TIA is less than 24 hours. Nonetheless, most occur within 30 minutes. The original definition of a TIA was time-based, i.e. less than 24 hours. However, current literature recognises that even short periods of ischemia can result in pathological changes to the brain. Therefore, a new tissue-based definition is now starting to be used, which is a transient episode of neurological dysfunction caused by focal brain, spinal cord or retinal ischemia without acute infarction. The biggest risk factor for strokes and TIAs is atrial fibrillation, with some studies suggesting an estimated 17 times increased risk. 
And classically, the predisposing factors can be split into those that are modifiable, i.e. smoking and hypertension, and those that are non-modifiable, increasing age and being a male. The clinical presentation is greatly variable, depending on which vascular territory is affected. For example, a middle cerebral artery occlusion can result in motor, sensory and visual deficits due to its supply of the frontal lobe, superior temporal gyrus and internal capsule, amongst other key parts of the brain. In people with sudden onset of neurological symptoms, a validated tool such as FAST, face, arm, speech, time, time to call 999, should be used outside of the hospital to screen for a diagnosis of stroke or TIA. The time element here is crucial due to the pathological concept of the penumbra. A penumbra is the viable but still ischemic area of brain tissue surrounding the blockage or occlusion. Therefore, rapid treatment of a stroke reduces the total burden of the penumbra, thus dramatically improving patient outcomes. Imaging-wise, a non-enhanced CT image of the brain is often immediately used to rule out a hemorrhagic stroke and to guide whether thrombolysis is clinically suitable. And lastly, management of a stroke includes a multitude of strategies, ranging from blood pressure control and glycemic control to oxygen therapy. And if a hemorrhagic stroke has been excluded, antiplatelet therapy may be started, and thrombolysis could be clinically indicated if within four and a half hours, but ideally within three, from the onset of the stroke. A patient's journey with a stroke doesn't end in the hospital, as the appropriate MDT follow-up is a key part of each patient's recovery. There are a few stats that I would like to leave you all with. Almost two in three stroke survivors leave hospital with some form of a disability and 4 in 10 stroke survivors require help with their activities of daily living on discharge. Okay, so that concludes this podcast on strokes. I'd like to finish by saying that by no means is this a complete and comprehensive guide to cerebrovascular events, but hopefully this case will serve as a foundation to guide your further reading on the topic. And if you've benefited from this podcast, please send us your email addresses and we will gladly get feedback forms out to you. Thank you for listening.